the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, they checked my ID at the door. Let me in anyway, which shows that security's really not doing its job. <laughs> yes, indeed. Craig Roberts with you, welcoming you to another edition of Lifeline. We are here during the week, and as we are each 5 to 7 p.m. in your afternoon drive home or whatever you might be up to this time of day, helping to address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We're going to do more of the same today. A little bit later on, our good buddy Brad Dake, is constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, is going to join us with some insights related to a new religious discrimination case. Wow, they just don't quite get it, do they? I mean, government just sometimes can't get out of its own way in understanding that the rights that are enshrined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are not to be taken lightly, but some governments do, and when they do, outfits like the Pacific Justice Institute steps in, so we'll give you a complete update as to what's going on, and uh, Brad will also talk a bit about uh, their banquet coming up this uh, this weekend, I think. Yeah, I think it's this weekend. As we lead off, boy, talk about uh, government overreaching. In this case, it's a matter of government doing the right thing and a judge doing the wrong thing. Let's find out more. Greg Burt joins us, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council. And Greg, we've been following this story in relationship to what's been happening at the Chino Valley Unified School District. And um, a, a bit of a battle royale, shall we call it, that's being queued up between the school district and the California Attorney General's office. One believing that, yeah, parents do have a right. And speaking to the Constitution, their right to be parents is enshrined even in the Constitution. Constitution, and yet there is this ongoing almost paranoia, this hoopla in relationship to gender dysphoria that somehow wants to say to parents, um, you birth them, you pay for them, but we'll raise them. And that certainly seems to be the attitude of the state of California. Give us more background as to what's at the very core of this case. Yeah, Craig, thanks for having me today. Um, yeah, this bill uh, is actually a school policy that's being implemented throughout California. Uh, it started as a bill that was introduced uh, by Bill Athaley, uh from uh, down south. Uh, and it simply said that uh, if a child is transitioning from one sex to another and they ask their teacher, hey, I want to be notif- I want to be uh, referred to as a different name, um, and I want to, or I want to use a different bathroom uh, or a different uh, sports team that's not related to my real sex. That you had to tell parents because what's happening here in California is the Department of Education is telling school districts that kids 
no matter how young they are, have privacy rights from their own parent. And if a kid decides, no matter how quick or for whatever reason, that they're not the gender that's listed on their uh, official document, that schools have to go with it. And that you need to keep it secret from the parent unless the child gives an okay. Well, this has caused lots of problems, as you uh, might imagine, from uh, parents who find out their kids have changed their name and the schools are treating them as the opposite sex. There was actually a lawsuit uh, filed, uh, and a uh, parent won a hundred thousand uh, bucks. I think it was in the Monterey area, uh, the Speckle School District. Uh, because her child was secretly transitioned without her permission. And this is a, a general policy that's going around. A lot of our schools have secret transitioning plans. And so this is a simple policy that actually it was introduced to the bill. The legislature refused to actually have a hearing. So Bill Asaley said, well, let's, let's introduce it as a school board as a policy into school boards. And so Chino Valley uh, Unified was the first school district to introduced the policy and it just required three simple things um all it did was say hey if if you uh, are requesting to be a different sex parents got to be notified if you want to use a different bathroom parents got to be notified or if you change your official or unofficial documents a a kid requests that parents got to be notified well the attorney general uh rob bonta and the rest of the Democrats blew up saying this was terrible. It was uh, violating the children's privacy rights. It was putting them in danger from their own parents who might not agree with their transitioning. And we have to protect kids from their own parents. And so he ended up filing a lawsuit against the Chino Valley Unified School District. And so we had a hearing last, the second hearing uh, last week and a state judge, uh, he the the attorney general was asking for a preliminary injunction uh, against the entire policy. And what the judge decided to do temporarily was put the policy on hold. Actually, he only put two parts of it on hold and let the other part go through until they have a trial, a jury trial in February. Um, and so the two parts that got struck down were the two parts. One, that that mentions gender identity, changing a a bathroom or asking your teacher to identify you as a different sex. The the part of the policy that actually he didn't have a problem with was a a child asking to change their official records or unofficial records. Um, And so that uh, and so we can talk more about that. So, you know, what's remarkable is it seems as if, at least on this topic, and you better believe if it's here, it's going to grow to other arenas. That all of the all of the rights are shifting to a child, a minor who can't enter into a contract, can't join the military. I mean, on and on the list goes. Normally, it's the parent who is charged with the responsibility of protection, direction, oversight, all of that. So the child can arbitrarily be influenced by. How should I dare put this politely? Oh, why bother? 
some wacko on the internet and now decide that they're going to change their identity and not only are the parents I mean when I was a kid I'll be honest with you Greg when I was a kid I used to hear with some frequency as long as you live underneath my roof right I mean it was it was dad's rules he made up the rules and uh, you know you had to abide by them and I think uh, some might debate this but I think in the end I turned out okay we want to strip parents of all of their parental rights Leave them on the hook financially, though, and then we're going to decide that somehow the state knows better than the parents of the children. And by the way, the one that seems to get the biggest vote is what, a 13-year-old? Because we know how much wisdom and discernment they have. I mean, it's just, it, just it, it, it defies logic at every turn. No, and it also defies our federal constitution. Uh, the Supreme Court has said over and over and over that, that one of the most fundamental rights that Americans have is that parents have the right to uh, direct the, uh, the the education, the religious training, the upbringing of their own children. And the state can't intervene in that. The state has limited ability to intervene in what a child is taught at home about what their identity is based on, right? And so we know that the federal government is going to shut this down, right? So, But we're stuck in state court. We actually had a case down, a federal case down in Escondido, where two uh, faith-based teachers who, who were being told by their school district that they had to lie to parents and deceive them regarding their the gender identity of their own students. And one of these teachers had like seven girls in her elementary, oh, it's junior high, junior high class identify as a different sex. And she was supposed to keep this all secret from the parents when they come into the parent-teacher conferences and when they come to the, you know, open house, she's supposed to keep track of which name she's supposed to use. And she goes, I'm not doing this. I'm not. Parents have a right to know what's happening to their children. And they filed a lawsuit and the federal judge agreed. And this was just a couple months ago. Um, And so that secrecy policy in that district is now... uh, can't be uh, can't be uh, implemented because they have a trial coming up. Same thing, a preliminary injunction against their policy. So, you know, this is going to have to be battled at in the, out in the courts. But really, we need to have a fundamental uh, discussion about who has the right to raise a child and decide what that child believes about who they are. Right? Because um, what they really think is that. People who, parents who believe that biology determines gender, those parents, that philosophy is dangerous to a child. It threatens their mental health, and a child could commit suicide if they're in a, if a kid who's confused about their gender is in a household like that. And that's the scary part. They're serious. They, they really think those parents are dangerous. Yeah, and, you know, we, we've all heard stories of, you know, cases where, yes, CPS had to step in and the parents are irresponsible and are abusive. Uh, I, I get that not every parent that has the capability of being one ought to be one. That said, I think the vast majority of Americans would agree that on par, on average, most people try to do the right thing, work hard for their kids, wish to give them a better life, and hope to uh, instill in them values, and a moral code 
and to suggest somehow that parents need to be blocked out of all of that and that every parent, you know, there there might be a child who is struggling with gender dysphoria and the parent might have a less than ideal reaction. Why they would think a parent should be shocked in the first place is, <laughs> I suppose, another conversation, but that there might be a case of that to now suggest, and therefore every single parent is going to be treated as if they're going to be suspect right out the gate by denying them their parental rights. And it really goes to the heart of, you know, this notion of a of an out-of-control nanny state. We're going to have more for you because this is going to be waking its way through the court system, as Greg Burt has, uh, has informed us. And I want to urge you to get more information, stay on top of the story, because, you know, the battle enjoined in uh, Chino Valley could be coming to a school district near you, courtesy of the attorney general's office if the district tries to do the right thing and the district attorney decides i mean the the attorney general rather decides no we know better than about this just take our word for it information on the web at californiafamily.org californiafamily.org our thanks to greg bird director of capital engagement for the california family council for that um, well quite honestly troubling but necessary update And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Well, from the theme of the uh, California Attorney General not respecting parental rights, we move to another example of constitutional rights not being uh, respected. This uh, uh, slightly further away, but not by much. Let's get an update as to what's been transpiring in uh, the the land of, uh, what is it, the Aloha land, uh, we'll call it. Brad Dacus joins us, president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute, constitutional lawyer. He was some insights related about a case of a musician that performs with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. And, Counselor, always a delight and an education to have you join us. So th- this seems to be yet another uh, take on the theme. Um, we will respect your rights and your religious freedoms, uh, but only when we feel like it. <laughs> that's, that's the shorthand. Tell us what has transpired in the case of a gentleman who is a world-class bassist performing, as I mentioned, with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, this gentleman, uh, he's a wonderful Christian man. His name's John Gallagher. And uh, he's been performing there, you know, doing world-class performance with them, with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, Orchestra since 1997. He's been committed to them. He's devoted. He has a, a passion as a, as a musician. And yet, in October 2021, uh, the orchestra imposed this COVID vaccine mandate. And uh, when it came time for him to have to be vaccinated, you know, he articulated that that he's prayed about. He has a religious uh, conviction against it. He doesn't feel God wants him to put that in his body. Uh, He's also cited his his uh, you know his religious you know detailed religious beliefs. And yet, uh, he was denied any accommodation and effectively fired from the the, uh, the symphony orchestra. And the real kicker here is the fact that they had no problem accommodating another uh, musician. Uh, so, you know, this was uh, outrageous and we at PJI uh, took it on. We have an office there in Hawaii and our, our attorney, uh, our staff attorney, Joe Gomez, uh, just did a, a great job. It's done a great job representing him. 
So they actually I mean that this is not even saying, well, we're going to, you know, discipline you. You've got to, you know, play without a bow for three weeks or, you know, we're going to we're going to put you on unpaid leave until we uh, we think you've learned your lesson. I mean, they, they outright said, yeah, we don't really care about your your beliefs. Uh, we don't care about the fact that you have been uh, a, a member of the symphony here for my goodness, you know, 20 years. Uh, we're not going to make an accommodation for you because we just don't feel like it. And uh, your your parting gift is going to be walking you out the door. You no longer have a job. I mean, it just it it, it is really stupefying as to why organizations are willing to go that far, particularly when he was willing, I understand, to uh, subject himself to other alternatives, including masking. Uh, reasonable COVID testing, et cetera, et cetera. And he, by the way, let's note for listeners, he's not a a brass or or um, reed instrument player. So it's not like he's blowing. I mean, most bassists don't need to keep their mouth open to play the bass last time I looked. <laughs> you are correct. Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. So yeah, there, there was no logical, rational basis for him not to be accommodated, much less discriminated against in, in view of another person who was accommodated. Uh, so, you know, he was he was targeted, They and they saw him um, as someone very sincere uh, in his, his faith. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's an attitude, it's almost a cult that we see, a cult mentality among these HRs uh, of human resources for these entities, public and private, where... They're, they're emphatic about it. It doesn't matter about science. It doesn't matter about the studies showing that the vaccine does not prevent transmission. That's indisputable. And if that's indisputable, that it doesn't prevent transmission, then there's absolutely no rational basis to justify such a senseless mandate, much less a mandate that is now, unfortunately, showing some very uh, uh, unfortunate statistical uh, outcomes uh, for many people who have been vaccinated. So uh, we're, we're defending him. And I tell you, we're defending people just like him, Craig, all across the country, including a class action lawsuit against the city of San Francisco on behalf of about a thousand workers of faith who were purged for the same reason, because they wouldn't accept the vax in violation of their sincere uh, religious convictions. Wow. So even though we start to kind of feel like uh, the worst of COVID is behind us, uh, not necessarily so. Counselor, final question for you on a slightly different topic, but one that I know that you're aware of. Uh, we all read with much dismay word that the California Attorney General has gone after Heartbeat International and a, a local uh, pro-life ministry organization that we've had partnership with many, many years here at KFAX, Real Options. And uh, the, the whole argument goes, well, you're promoting the abortion reversal pill, and we feel there is a lack of evidence of efficacy, and therefore we're going to punish you big time because you're making promises and promoting things that you ought not to. Of course, uh, we're still arguing about the the efficacy and safety of things like RU486, um, and many argue that there was a major rush to approve that by the FDA. So now it's sounding as if the attorney general is saying, if 
if a woman decides to take um, an abortifacient and then has a change of heart, even though it is potentially possible to reverse the impact of that decision um, and and effectively reverse the 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 uh, the the impact or or the the removing of that life um, via the abortifacient, that uh, they don't want women to have that option. Isn't it always interesting the way the people that talk the most about choice seem to be the greatest opponents to it? You're absolutely right. And, and the fact is, um, these reversals are are statistically uh, very, very viable. They're not, they don't work all the time because when you take the first abortifacient, um, you know, that's, that's down, a, down a terrible path. But you, it's indisputable. The large uh, numbers and, and percentage uh, who have been successful uh, in uh, not taking the second and instead uh, doing the procedure to uh, reverse the uh, uh, the abortion that's that's, that's uh, initiated, if you will. So, uh, now this the, the reason it's real clear. The reason the attorney general is going after these wonderful pro life pl- uh, clinics is because they want death. They want abortion, and they want to shut down these pro life clinics because they despise efforts to save human life and babies. Um, that's what this is all about. And uh, there, and we at Pacific Justice Institute, make no mistake, have done a lot of work and are doing a lot of work helping pro-life clinics in blue states that are under attack by such attorney generals to shut them down. It's pretty re- remarkable. And, you know, every time you turn around, it, it seems as if they're coming up with excuses to go after um, organizations that are providing women with the whole truth, the whole story, the totality of their options so that they have a real choice in front of them instead of just, you know, this 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 fake pro-death choice. And as much as we've seen them argue, oh, you need to provide signs letting women know that uh, abortion is an option is... <laughs> As if they come in and don't don't already know that it, it just seems as at every turn everything that they can do to try to restrict access to the full truth they're they're all about it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That's what they're about. And we at Pacific Justice we challenge the state law mandating uh, that pro life clinics had to have a large sign saying where women women could get a free or low cost abortion. Um, you know, we took that and we uh, to the Supreme Court were the first to file to challenge it. Others did, and the Supreme Court declared it was unconstitutional. And we we stand by to defend pro-life clinics doing great work. They care about women. Uh, they care about all, uh, you know all the choices. Uh, I would never think anyone would should should trust uh, an abortion clinic where their goal is to make money and kill as many as they can and possibly sell their body parts. Um, it's a very sick industry and careful to go to those who really, truly care about them and, and give them good medical uh, advice and counsel. Well, we're sure glad that organizations like Pacific Justice Institute are there to stand with folks that have had their rights trampled upon, completely ignored, you know, be it taking place at the hands of a school district or even as high up as the uh, California Attorney General's office. Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, information online about their good work and how you can get behind them by going to pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And our thanks to Brad Dacus for that update. 5.30 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Now, if you go to the average bookstore, and I realize you have to hunt them down these days, but trust me, they still exist. If you go to the church growth section or religious section, depending upon how your bookstore is organized, you'll find shelves there loaded with books on church growth. How to do it big, bold, brilliant, wide, and rapidly. But what if the idea of a section of books that took the opposite tenor, that instead of doing the big, bold, brilliant, wide, and rapidly, instead taught you how to do it slow, thoughtful, deep, and deliberate. You'd probably think the books were 90 to 100 years old, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, don't we live in a day and an age when everything that we do fast equates better? I mean, let, let's face it, we, we just, everything we do, the more that we can do, the more rapidly we can do it, that must be good. So if it applies to information, technology, food, cars, the internet, why not faith? Why not indeed? My guest tonight, I think, would argue that um, fast is not always better. In fact, there's much in terms of the history of the church that would demonstrate just the opposite, that the approach of being slow, thoughtful, deep, and deliberate also means a church that will be sustainable and a body of believers that will be deep in their faith, in their relationship with Christ. Christopher Smith is the editor of the Inglewood Review of Books and member of the Inglewood uh, Christian Church community outside of um, Indianapolis, co-author of a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And uh, Chris, great to have you on the program. Thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. I'm, I'm trying to think the, the pitch to your publisher on this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's got to have been either a stack of rejections or a few people that thought, clearly this guy has either lost his mind or um, uh, needs to have a serious talk with, with somebody, um, some church growth expert, because we know in 2014, fast is just the only way to do it. Right, yep. Um, actually, we were pretty fortunate. We found an editor that uh, liked the idea um, from the very outset, and he basically coached us through the the whole the whole process. So uh, we were very fortunate to find find an editor who thinks outside the box. That thinking outside of the box, as much as it might seem to be uh, in terms of the way most of people that are involved in the church growth movement or have a heartbeat for all of this, is in fact not all that outside of the box, is it? In fact, I think all there's right. a, lot of, a lot of evidence to demonstrate historically that for the bulk of the history of the church, uh, that thoughtful, slow, deep, deliberate approach is exactly what uh, got the church from uh, the time of Christ to where we're at today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a long history of... of um of patient persistence uh, in the Christian community. Uh, but it, it tends to be, like you said, kind of more underground. <laughs> Uh, not the mainstream of church history. This movement that we've seen um, that, that seems as if um, I don't know, it's, it's like franchising the kingdom of God like it were a McDonald's. You know, sure, absolutely. Let's, let's put them up as quickly as we possibly can. I mean, nobody got, and I'm not picking on McDonald's, but, but any fast food restaurant, no serious, thoughtful person who really is a foodie thinks of these locations as a spot for fine dining. We're going to um, walk away with a culinary experience. Uh, we, we know what they are for what they 
they are. You want it fast, quick. Uh, that's what you do. That you know that uh, it's not going to be the kind of experience um, um, colonistically that you'll be thinking out above or, or sharing with others for years to come. Uh, seemingly just the opposite of what we want out of church, that we do want it to be something that is going to be deep and meaningful and hopefully profound and sustaining. Uh, and yet I'm, I'm wondering wherein lies then this, this creep toward doing it fast, equating better within the church. Well, I think it's coming from the larger culture. Uh, one of the things that we do in the book is kind of look at the history, look briefly at the history of industrialization uh, and kind of the technological growth over the last 200 years, um, basically during the industrial and now the post-industrial age. Um, and basically, one of the, the side effects of that sort of rise of industry, and there's been, I mean, there's been some great things that have come out of that industry. I mean, many people were uh, saved from really, really uh, hard, back-breaking work uh, through uh, the rise of industry. Uh, but, but one of the things that has happened is that has kind of continued to grow and grow and expand uh, globally is that there's kind of been an expectation for for speed and for convenience uh, that has kind of crept into all of life, um, it, as you mentioned, into the food we eat and how we eat it, and, and also, uh, we argue in the book, into the way that we exist as churches. Um, and, and yeah, and we, I think it's mostly just kind of been uh, a lack of critical, critical thinking and acting um, in the ways that we engage the larger culture uh, that has kind of... Uh, and, it, and again, it's kind of slowly infiltrated our churches. Uh, as you said in your introduction, uh, the church growth movement played a big part in that. And certainly there was, I mean, there was a good intent uh, in the church growth movement uh, of trying to, to grow ch- churches, to spread the gospel of Christ and bring more people into into our churches. Those are wonderful and noble noble goals. But, but because of the culture of uh, industrialization, the culture of speed and efficiency, um, the, that, that movement uh, became focused more on the numbers than on the depth. Um, and and that's, that's the point at which it started to kind of turn and uh, move in a direction that's not, not particularly helpful, we think. Well, and and uh, you know, not, not not healthy too in a spiritual standpoint. In a lot of ways, I mean, let's face it. At the core, um, all of this dialogue, whether we talk about outreach, evangelism, church growth, um, discipleship, all comes down to one core issue, and that is the business of relationships. Oh, uh, whether we're talking about building relationships interpersonally between uh, family members and husbands and wives and kids and so on and so forth, building relationships with strangers to love them to Christ, uh, ultimately toward the, the the penultimate goal of a restored relationship with the Creator Himself, which is, of course, what He sent His Son to do, that substitutionary work on the cross on our behalf, so that we might be reconciled into a restored relationship with Him. And yet, we look at the world around us, and if anything, it seems to be marked by the notion that lasting relationships are a thing of the past because we move so fast and and indeliberately and, and, and without 
a lot of, of thought or care. And as much as that has been the hallmark of of changing the way relationships are, then I get, got a little bit scary thinking, well, my goodness, if doing it rapid and, and uh, um, uh, big and bold has had an impact in, in so many ways on sustainability of relationships, what does it say about the sustainability, so to speak, of our relationship with the very God himself? No, no doubt. And that's, uh, Craig, you've kind of hit on the reason that we actually chose the, the name Slow Church and not just uh, Slow Christianity or Slow Faith. Um, but, but we very intentionally chose the, the, the language of Slow Church because what we believe, like you were, for the reasons that you just stated, that uh, what God has been doing in the world and God continues to do in the world is, is largely centered around the gathering of the people. And this is something that began in Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even Jesus. Uh, when he started his ministry, uh, came of age and started his ministry, one of the first things that he did was to gather a community of disciples around him. And we believe that it's in community, in our churches, uh, that we that we can start to recover what it means to be in meaningful relationships um, if, we, if we're willing to slow down and be attentive to, to what we've been called to be. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I think you're absolutely right that that relationship is at the heart of what what God is doing in the world and what what the heart of what we're called into as followers of Jesus. So there's a little literal troubling aspect to this that this rapid results approach that we take today and it's everywhere it's pervasive everywhere within culture and and business and society and of course it's crept into church that it seems to be this focus on rapid results at the expense of long-term sustainability and there's a number of layers in which this becomes very troubling not only in terms of sustainability for example of a new church plant how many churches come and go and come and go and come and go and this is that really the way god wants us to to do community if at the core the church is really about the neighborhood or the community and then the other question is if there is such a profound impact on the sustainability of church how can we not help but wonder whether or not that might have an impact on the sustainability of our relationship with God. Oh, not that he would flutter or fail, <laughs> but that we, from our perspective, might be just inclined to give up at a moment's notice. I mean, let's face it, largely in the westernized church, we're, we're not really accustomed to pain or sacrifice or um, agony. In fact, we work very hard to avoid all of that. Which is curious because the Bible says much about suffering for our faith and persecution for his namesake. A lot more to talk about. Christopher Smith is with us today. He's co-authored Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll take a brief time out. In fact, let's not take it brief. We'll make it slow. <laughs> We've got traffic. Maybe you've got that slow experience in your life already today. Take a deep breath. And we'll return to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking today with author Chris Smith. He has co-authored with John Patterson a new book called Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And uh, this breaches into so many aspects of our faith 
of the sustainability of same at not just our faith but also local congregations um, the body of Christ and you know I guess in a day and an age as we've been suggesting Chris where we have seen the emphasizing of um, uh, quantity over quality this has really been um, almost disastrous at certain levels to every aspect of, of faith within uh, Western Christianity hasn't it? Oh yeah absolutely absolutely yeah this is really really broadly reaching and I mean, and honestly, it's part of the reason that I mean, one of the things that we kind of have experienced ourselves and have seen elsewhere um, is simply that uh, we tend to compartmentalize our faith. Uh, that our faith has become more and more uh, not pertinent to the rest of our life. What we do on Sunday is kind of separate—a separate thing from what goes on. Uh, in our in our home or in, at our office place, um, whatever that may be, um, and, and we we don't think that that's what, what uh, we have been called into. I mean, we think that God is reconciling all things in Christ, uh, and that that the wisdom of the gospel is is pertinent um, to our to our family life, to our work life, and then part of the problem is that we've kind of. Uh, kind of fragmented home from work from church from uh, from maybe other social activities or whatever but um, and and those spheres of our lives don't uh, interact with each other very much um, and I mean part of what we're encouraging as we slow down is to to allow God to to heal some of those uh, fragmentations and find ways for for our lives not to be uh, quite so fractured. And that fracture, that fragmentation, seems to be clearly an outgrowth of the emphasis on quantity over quality. I mean, let's face it, if we're left with a choice of either going deeper or going quicker, um, culture today has sort of um, programmed us. We have been uh, uh, almost like Pavlov's dog, trained to respond to the quicker, not realizing how much we're missing in the going deeper. I mean, is it any wonder that we compartmentalize then and we relegate God to a brief hour-long experience on Sunday mornings and maybe for, uh, you know, a half hour or so uh, Wednesdays, if, if he's that fortunate, because we don't see the value in the integration of our relationship with the Lord in every aspect of our life, in every day of our life, because let's face it, we've never perhaps ever seen the what that means to, to be modeled in front of us. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, I mean part of the part of the reason for that again is the the advertising culture uh, that we're in the midst of that that always uh, encourages encourages us to seek more 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 we need we need a new car we need a new house we need uh, a vacation uh, whatever whatever uh, the advertisers are selling um, but but, but the kind of the collective effect of that is always encouraging us to to desire more 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 and what we need I think is is a transformation of our desires um, uh, a transformation to, to to not desire more but to desire to 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 go deeper in the the relationships that that we already have well and doesn't it become a vicious cycle too because the more and more and more that takes us to a more shallower degree it's sort of the the quick high the quick fix um, in life at so many levels becomes terribly unfulfilling I would suspect after a while, and so then you're you're motivated to go after more because at the end of the day you're you're 
you're trying to, to obtain something that, that is not a product of the, the faster, the quicker, the more, but of the slow and the deliberate and the deep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we focus on in a chapter later in the book is the, the practice of gratitude, of being thankful. And I think that's, that's one of the, the ways that God has provided for us to kind of resist uh, this or to, to, um, to start to put us on a journey toward healing and, and being transformed out of this culture that always wants more and more and more to, to learn to be grateful for, for the things that, uh, that God has provided for us, uh, for the relationships that God has provided for us and, and the, the resources that God has provided us with, uh, both as individuals and as congregations. Um, and, and I think if we, the, the greater, uh, the, we learn to practice thankfulness, gratitude. Um, I think that we'll start to to see some see some transformation. It really comes down to the sense of being grateful, which causes you to pause and look at all that is around you. What's the old phrase about stopping to smell the roses? Oh, yeah. We're we're rushing down the street and along the way. uh, We don't have time to capture the sights nor the fragrance because we're just too busy thinking about uh, what we're doing next, what we're doing tomorrow, what we're doing in 20 minutes. Um, I, I guess the big question is, since that sort of manic approach to life is so inbred in so many of us. I mean, I would wonder, even as we're talking right now, and there are people that are listening to our conversation on the drive home who, even though they recognize the danger and the illegality of browsing text messages, are doing it as we speak because they just can't, simply can't wait to see what that text message might say. How, how do we get off of this roller coaster ride to pause long enough to say we need to do some serious introspection here about our priorities and where we give time? No, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, just, I mean, just the example that you gave of, of checking test ma- te- text messages while you're driving, I mean, that's a... That's a potential uh, that has the potential of death for for you and and someone and others around you. Um, and uh, it's interesting that the Bible, I mean, kind of talks about uh, the connection between uh, the way of sin and death. And, and 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 I think that that's I mean part of the consequences of of living too fast um, is I mean is ultimately uh, death. Um, and, and maybe uh, it's not always going to happen. Hopefully it won't always happen, but, but there's always that potential there uh, when we're trying to do too much and not being attentive uh, to what's going on around us, particularly in a culture where we use, like ours today, where we use heavy machinery like cars and, and so forth. And, I mean, there's the, grip, the risk is... Well, there's also, I think, a degree of risk, as I use that as an example, from a spiritual standpoint, because as you talk about in the book, Slow Church, this culture of unreflective speed also means that we might be inclined to just kind of, at the surface, buy into any whim, any uh, doctrine that comes our way, because it sounds okay, or yeah, I've read a little bit of scripture, that seems to be in harmony, and so we don't take the time to research, we're we're not fruit inspectors, we don't test the spirits to see if they are of God, there there are so many aspects of what we 
are warned to do in a slow, thoughtful, deliberate fashion from a spiritual growth standpoint, from a relation with Christ standpoint, that is it any wonder that we have not only just a sloppy religion, sloppy relationships, but then uh, so often so many within the church today are just pulled to and fro at any pardon me, any whim of, of false teaching because it's a culture of unreflective speed. Sure. I mean, you go into a Christian bookstore, and then that's, that sort of sloppiness is uh, is reflected. I, I, I don't. I'm not going to name any particular names, uh, but but that sort of kind of. Uh, I mean, everything from prosperity gospel to uh, uh, self help sorts of stuff. I mean, it's all there, and it's all it's all really not that reflective. Um, it's just kind of a, a quick fix of what will make us feel good. If you've just tuned into our conversation, we're visiting today with Chris Smith, co-author of Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. We'll talk a bit about what this means, how we can slow down the pace, and what the benefits can be, not only in terms of our own um, family well-being and, and mental health, but ultimately for spiritual well-being and the well-being of our communities. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Life. Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 